Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. What does made in America mean today? It's a phrase that gets thrown around by politicians on the left and the right. It's a promise to bring back jobs to American shores, revive the middle class, protect our national security. It's also a literal label protected by the Federal Trade Commission. And in the case of one sweatshirt manufacturer in Portland, Maine, it became a personal mission to compete against cheap imports while providing good wages with union benefits. The challenge of domestic production is chronicled in a new book called Making It in America, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA. Author Rachel Slade joins us now. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. You spent three years following Ben and Whitney Waxman. They're a couple from Portland, Maine, who run a company called American Roots. Can you tell us what first interested you in Ben and Whitney? I've always been fascinated by manufacturing in America. It's part of my history. And um, as somebody from the Northeast, I have been really interested in how we got here, um, seeing post-industrial landscapes, um, but also being very aware of, you know, the influx of imported goods and how many imported goods I, you know, touch and work with every day. So when I found Ben and Whitney, um, who are not rich, they're middle-class Americans, just like me, not backed by private equity or VC, people who actually mortgaged their home and cashed in their 401ks to start this company, I was just enthralled. I was like, will this work? Can this work? They started with a mission. The mission was to bring back manufacturing, but also to build community through manufacturing. And I just wanted to watch that, um, you know, follow their workers, follow their progress, especially when the pandemic um, really thwarted what they were doing and they had to pivot. So I wanted to understand what it takes. What does it look like? What what does it mean to make in America right now? And the book centers around their journey to build the kind of company they believe America needs. And you chronicle several obstacles that they encounter. And one of their big first hurdles was sourcing, like quite literally, where do I find the fabric to make the sweatshirt? So how did they finally track down the zippers, the fabric, the materials they needed? So they had never done apparel manufacturing before. And believe it or not, the first place they went was Google. I mean, they had to really build their knowledge from scratch. The problem, of course, with a lot of people who want to do this, just like Ben and Whitney, is that there isn't a lot of experience out there. There isn't a a lot of knowledge, especially in apparel manufacturing, which was one of the first industries to be offshored after the passage of NAFTA. So they went online and they just started building contacts. And yeah, they ended up learning very quickly that some people present themselves as um, suppliers or middlemen, and actually they can't deliver the way they hoped they would. This is a big problem with manufacturing in general, especially with small companies, is that they don't have the buying power and the uh, financial power to um, to place the orders that they or, or to get the delivery that they need in a timely fashion because they're competing with really large organizations. 
One of the fascinating things uh, I learned was that we're like the second or third largest producer of cotton in the world, but then it goes to China to be made into fabric. So although we're growing the cotton, we're not actually making the fabric. You know, you're right. Um, And this is really upsetting because um, I've been tracking the loss of textile manufacturing just over the past couple of months. 10 textile manufacturers in the South have closed. Um, And a great part of that is because just demand is shrinking. Um, It's also very difficult to find people who are interested in this kind of manufacturing. And it's complicated. I think part of the reason that offshoring happens so quickly in America during my lifetime, I mean, just the past couple of decades, is because manufacturing is, is difficult. It's really difficult, and companies would much rather stump that responsibility to workers um, and to you know keeping up with technology and everything else elsewhere. They'd rather focus on the glamorous stuff like marketing and um, and you know coordinating and finance and that sort of thing. And I think that's what Americans have mostly become at this point. That leads me into my next question, which was the next big challenge that they really seemed to face was labor. I get the impression that they had this idea, or perhaps I should call it this fantasy, of bringing people back who used to work in apparel manufacturing. But that wasn't the case for them at all. Not at all. So I'm in New England. They're in New England. They're in Maine, um, Portland, Maine, which is you know, the biggest city in Maine. And there used to be this massive textile and apparel um, industry here. What's fascinating is that, again, after NAFTA, which passed in 1992, all of that just evaporated really quickly. And so when they founded their company in 2015, it was too late. Those people were gone. They, They were either actually gone from this earth or they were retired or they had found other jobs. And so who walked through the door? They were offering, Ben and Whitney offered free training um, to anybody who was interested in doing doing the work. And the people who walked through the door were actually new Americans, people from places like Vietnam and Iraq and Iran and Congo and Angola, people who had actually fled their homelands to find a better life for them and their families um, in the United States. And their journeys, by the way, I I spoke to so many of them, and their journeys were long and arduous. It takes years to find yourself in the U.S., and it takes a lot lot more time um, to then be able to um, work legally in the United States. So it's a long, arduous journey. And so just for those people to be able to get the training was an incredible honor for them. And then they got to work, which really helped during the pandemic. What's interesting to me about that is that new Americans have always worked in apparel manufacturing. You know, my grandfather's family immigrated from Russia to Brooklyn in the early 1900s. And my grandfather was a furrier. Like, that's that's what you did. Uh, you worked in tailoring and garment manufacturing. And it seems like they're having that exact same experience again. That's my experience, too. My great-grandfather came in 1880 
Um, and he started working in a factory and he was able to rise up the ranks. I mean, this is a man who was an immigrant, didn't speak English when he first arrived. Um, and he found a way to use manufacturing to enter the middle class. And so that has been the traditional pathway for immigrants for a hundred years. You're exactly right. And so here we have this repeating itself, this incredible history of bringing people from abroad who are coming with different cultures, different skills, um, you know, different values and integrating them into American society very, very quickly, which is fascinating and also really important for our economy because they instantly become taxpayers when they're working. I also find it really fascinating that he had so much trouble hiring Americans because these were well above minimum wage jobs. They had health care. They had union benefits. Like this was not a, a sweatshop as we think of it. They were really trying to do right by their employees. But why do you think that was like, why do you think culturally like native born Americans sort of found those jobs less than desirable? Is that the right word? You know, I think manufacturing has been so severed from our consciousness at this point. Um, I think when, when young people are in school, it's not even considered a viable career path. And I also think, I, I mean, I actually know this, that um, they were competing with really large organizations like Amazon for workers. Amazon was, you know, saw that they were paying $20 an hour for workers, for example. And Amazon was offering, you know, the, the same um, hourly wage with obvi without obviously the union benefits. And um, I think that there's just a lot of short-term thinking like, Let's grab those jobs. I'll, I'll drive around. I won't necessarily learn a new skill, um, but, you know, it, it seems easier in some cases, I think. But Anna, I'll, ultimately, like, I wish I could answer this question, but I think it's endemic all around the country that these really good jobs in manufacturing are going unfilled because young people don't see this as a pathway especially here in Ohio, sort of home to the Rust Belt, I think there's this fear that manufacturing jobs are not stable. They're not something you can stake your life on. I think, you know, my parents' generation beat into us like this was not going to be a good choice because they watched their jobs disappear and go away. That's absolutely legitimate. And um, I can understand why somebody would say that. On the other hand, there's just been this huge infusion of um, investment in manufacturing, not necessarily in apparel, although that is growing. I mean, there's an incredible network of apparel and textile manufacturers, and they're really trying to create a stable environment to bring this back. Um, but in high-tech manufacturing, the investment is really there, and there's a strong desire in America to bring this back. I want to talk about what happened in 2017. This is before you started following them, but you write about these new American workers join this union, and some of them go and speak at the National Convention of the United Steelworkers. That's that's the union they join. And um, I guess it was this, this new concept to have a union and benefits and collective bargaining. But then one of the workers ends up on the cover of the union magazine wearing a hijab. And this yeah, is where things take a turn. 
It was a really interesting moment for American Roots because Ben Waxman, the the co-founder with his wife, Whitney, um, had worked for the AFL-CIO for 10 years. We had a strong relationship with unions and obviously with the AFL-CIO and Rich Trunka, who at the time was president. And so it was just a great honor to feature, you know, a United Steelworker on the cover, exactly wearing a hijab, um, working at a sewing machine that runs counter to, I think, how some workers see United Steelworkers. Um, We don't know who started basically trolling um, social media, American Roots social media and United Steelworkers social media, but there was, um, yeah, there was um, very strong racism and anger that um, it was a woman and that she was obviously Muslim. Um, And uh, American Roots actually had to put in a security system. Nothing ultimately happened, but I think I think this was a, a real moment for for some union workers who just were uh, were were upset that like the face of union workers was changing, um, and in in my opinion, for the better. Like unions are stronger with every single person who joins a union. Unions get stronger. It doesn't matter whether it's male or female or other. Um, and it doesn't matter what their cultural background is, if they're part of the union, paying those dues, believing in what unions offer, which obviously is much more than just negotiating for um, better um, wages. Um, The union movement gets stronger in America. Tell me about American Roots' first big order, because this almost puts the company under. Right. So they got a big order um, and they had this brand new product. It was their custom designed hoodie, which is actually a very complicated thing to build. It takes uh, about 30 people, 45 minutes to actually manufacture this garment um, because they had designed it for union workers. Like it's a very kind of tough thing, tough piece of clothing. It's not fast fashion at all. This thing will last I'm going to be handing my American Roots hoodie down to my grandchildren. (laughs) I know that it's still going to be around. Um, But anyway, so they get this massive order. And so they have to buy a a large amount of fabric. And they'd never done this before. And they were working with a middleman. And they called up the middleman and they said, "Um, can you get us, I I think it was 5,000 yards of uh, fleece. And the guy was silent for a few seconds. And then he said, uh, yeah, I think I can get it. And then they said, can you get it to us now? And again, silence. Okay, I can deliver it. They get the, they get, they get it. He drives it up himself from North Carolina. Um, they cut the fabric, they manufacture the hoodies, they send them out. I mean, this is, this is like, they've never done this kind of bulk order before. And as soon as people start wearing the hoodies, their buyers, um, the fabric starts to unravel. Which is not what you want. Not what you want at all. And so Ben gets a call. He's putting his young son to sleep. He had a toddler at the time and gets this call. And it's just like, these aren't working for us. You're going to have to remake them. And Ben said, like all American manufacturers would say, I will make this right. 
It cost them $25,000 to do that, but it was a major learning experience for them. And they realized that they needed to actually build their own fleece from scratch to make it work. And that's what they do now. I think a lot of people don't understand how the garment industry works. So you think like you could go to Michael's and just buy, you know, I don't know, 5,000 yards. But um, if you're a real manufacturer, you're designing um, uh, fabric from scratch. That means the cotton, the dyeing, the weaving, how much uh, spandex is in it, whatever it is, all of that is custom designed for your product. It's a really involved process. Yeah, I think we can get into it a little bit later, but I have big feelings about like vintage wool versus like modern day wool or like vintage cotton versus today. Uh, But we're going to actually take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to expand our conversation from Portland, Maine to American manufacturing as a whole. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 and PR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're talking about American manufacturing this hour through the lens of one apparel company in Portland, Maine, that set out on a mission to make a sweatshirt using only American materials and sewn here in the United States. The story of the company, American Roots, is chronicled in a new book called Making It in America. Still with us is its author, Rachel Slade. And what I really enjoyed about the book is how it functions as an accessible introduction to the history of U.S. labor and our economic foreign policy. So we used to emphasize Made in America, and I'm actually going to play a fun clip from an old commercial. There used to be more of us in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, but a lot of our jobs have disappeared. A lot of the clothes Americans are buying for women and kids are imports. They're being made in foreign places. When the work's done here, we can support our families and pay our taxes and buy the things other Americans make. That's what it means when the label says union. And that's, it's so funny to me that, like, that was actually, I can't imagine that commercial on television today. I know, it's pretty amazing. And there was actually even more to that clip, um, a whole union chorus yes of men and women singing look for the union label and it was done in the 70s it's pretty campy from you know this perspective of 2024 but it's absolutely amazing i've had um you know kids when i show it to them their jaws just dropped they were like this was a real thing (laughs) yeah and you know it's interesting when you chronicle ben's life his mother was a textile manufacturer right Absolutely, yes. So his mother, Dory, actually um, really wanted to get the young, her young kids, her three boys involved in some kind of manufacturing. And um, at the time, in the early 90s, there were all these textile manufacturers in Maine, and they were making these 
absolutely stunning woolens, um, woven woolens. And so Dory just actually drove around Maine and would pick up these the wool, um, the, the wool fabrics, and then cut and sew them into blankets and shawls. So Ben had a sense of, you know, what it took to get into manufacturing. And he also watched his mother's business take a big hit after then-President Bill Clinton negotiated NAFTA. And what I find really fascinating is you have Dory tell you this story of when the Carlton Wool factory closes, and it's such a wild story. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. I actually... I got, I, I sat down with Dory over a bottle of wine. And then when she started to tell that story, I just pulled out my recorder and I was like, I have to get this. Um, so, so very briefly, the story is that, as I said, Dory had all these connections to local textile manufacturers in Maine in the early nineties. And, um, then one day she got an emergency call from the, the factory foreman. And he said, you got to get up here. And she drove up with her van. Um, she wasn't sure what she was going to see. And when she when she got to the factory, she went to where all the looms had once been, and the whole place was empty. And the foreman turned to her and said, "All shipped to China." It had happened practically overnight. No warning. All of the um, all of the employees were suddenly without work. Dory grabbed all of the fabric that she could at a great discount, but that was the beginning of the end. And then one by one, the textiles closed. The textile factories closed. And what I found fascinating by that is like, Dory is the one that tells the mayor or someone in like public office that this is what's happening. Like he doesn't even know that this huge factory in his town is closing. So this is the fascinating thing, actually. It's really tough to get data about how many jobs were lost and how many factories closed since NAFTA. It's not something that's actually very well tracked. And um, we still don't have... I know, right? And so it's still not well tracked. And so, yeah, these things just closed, vanished, and then the newspapers would pick it up. And so you would have to actually be a detective to get really good numbers. Um, But there's some estimation like um, 60,000 factories have closed since 2000, since the year 2000. Yeah, you also had that uh, about 5 million manufacturing jobs potentially disappeared between 1994 and 2013. So I guess we get these very educated guesses on what's been lost. That's right. Yeah, these are all guesses. We don't have good data about this, but it you you know that that it was a major impact because the entire political landscape of America changed when folks suddenly lost their jobs and could not find comparable work. You have these two sentences in the book that I think crystallize what we're talking about, and I I'm, I'm going to read them. Uh, American consumers now find themselves in a dire situation. They are dependent on other nations to provide the bulk of their basic needs, medicines, technology, vehicles, energy, furniture, and of course, clothing. And I didn't realize that most of our medications are made overseas too. 
Yeah, Catherine Ebon actually wrote an incredible um, book about that, that 90% of our generics are, are manufactured in India and China. And of course, that's so far away, it's really difficult to, to um, monitor quality. And so in some really dire cases, what people have found is that chemically the, the drugs are not what they say they're supposed to be. So that's just one example of the really um, heartbreaking consequences of offshoring literally everything that we need. And another, I guess, consequence, depending on how you look at it politically, I think in a lot of ways, the offshoring of American manufacturing led to the election of former President Donald Trump. He was the first major party presidential candidate in recent history, as far as I remember, to push back on the idea of free trade, to sort of speak to the people, particularly like here in Ohio, who felt like the government had really screwed them and left them behind. That's absolutely true. I mean, there was just so much anger and um, Trump tapped into that anger and it was righteous anger. I mean, people were not wrong. Um, And so, yes, uh, President and former President Trump gave voice to that um, and enacted some tariffs. And what, of course, we all discover very quickly is that The tariff game is a very difficult game. It's a delicate game. And there are always repercussions on the other side. So it's tough. But um, I appreciate that he that he was the one who started talking about it. And I'm and I'm extremely excited about um, what Biden has done to pick up that mantle and really develop the first industrial plan that America has had since probably since FDR. I mean, it's just a massive, wide-reaching industrial plan um, to help these communities that got so hurt by these free trade agreements um, and also bring high-tech manufacturing back to the states, which is where it needs to be. I want to shift our conversation back towards fashion, particularly fash fashion and the rise of this extremely cheap clothing. You have a fascinating chart in the book that shows what makes up the value of a hoodie sold by Zara. And the takeaway, first of all, for me, was that it was shocking that the hoodie was $28, but also how little of that $28 was going to the people who made it. That's something that really people don't understand. We are so hungry for cheap things. And the result of that is that we buy a bunch of stuff. We don't wear it that much. And then we have a tendency to throw it away. So it's either ending up in landfill or it's ending up actually in Africa, which is causing all kinds of problems as well, which I get into in my book a little bit. Um, But there is no way that you can produce, for example, a $10 pair of leggings or you know, a, a $15 hoodie without exploiting both labor and the environment. I wanted to mention um, these new companies, these new Chinese websites like Timu and Xi'an. Um, they're producing, they're selling Americans like really, really cheap stuff. And um, what they are doing is exploiting um, a, a a little known law, but it's getting a lot of attention called de minimis, which allows them to ship direct to Americans without any tariffs. Um, And I just wanted to say that 
Can you guess how many packages are coming in per day to Americans um, from Timu and Xi'an? Ooh, I know Timu probably just went up because they bought all those Super Bowl ads that I think everybody mm-hmm. saw. Yeah, uh, I think they also said it was Temu, which I was like, I can't get my head around oh, the way sorry. it was. No, I always <laughs> said Timu. And then like the ad had it differently. And I was like, that's how you say it. But uh, I'll say 100,000 a day. A million. OK, not even close. A million garments, packages are coming into America every day. And a lot of these garments were made with forced labor. Um, and the cottons and the other pro- uh, the other um, components of these were made with forced labor. Not all of them, but a lot of them. There is no culpability. There's no way to track the supply chain on those products. And they're not designed to last. I mean, that's what fast fashion is. Uh, I saw this statistic that Americans throw away or donate about 80 pounds of clothing a year, which when you add up all of us, that's just an unfathomable amount of clothing. And you write in the book that a lot of it gets sent abroad, particularly to Ghana, and that we've been doing this for decades. Yeah. So started in the 1970s, one one little... um thing that I love about the story is that when Ghanans first began receiving clothing from the United States, they called it dead men's clothing because <laughs> that was the only way that they could rationalize that people would just like give away their stuff. They, they would have to be dead. Um, and now the problem is that our clothes are made so cheaply and they have so much um, uh, artificial stuff, so much, so much uh, petroleum product in them that's Sometimes they spontaneously combust, (laughs) Um, but also they're just very difficult to work with. So the Ghanans had this whole industry. They have this whole industry of repurposing garments. So they, they, they sew them, they dye them for the West African market. But it turns out that when you have a ton of polyester, a ton of petroleum in a product, um, they're very difficult to sew um, and they're very difficult to dye. They're impossible to dye. So what the Ghanans end up doing with the billions of pounds of stuff that we're sending to them is just throw them away. And so these these tossed clothes from America are now clogging up waterways all over West Africa. It's it's a health it's it's an it's an environmental crisis on a scale that you cannot imagine. Has writing this book changed the way that you shop? Um, I have always been obsessed with it. I drive my husband crazy about this. Like every time he wants to buy something, I'm always like, is there an American product that you can buy instead? I drive my daughter crazy about it. Now she spends a lot of time thrifting. She's 22. So that makes sense. Um, But I have been so heartened by the outpouring of support from small manufacturers around the United States. They're very difficult to find because they cannot afford to get onto Google. They cannot afford to um, to get through, you know, to get front and center when you Google made in USA clothing. Um, so they're kind of buried. But I've been using Instagram. I Basically, Instagram now knows that all I want is made in USA. And I have just found <laughs> incredible small producers um, who are really committed to this. So right now, you can't see me, but I'm wearing um, Vermont flannel, um, which is organic USA-made flannel shirt. And it's, it's, again, 
I'm going to be passing this down to my grandchildren. And I want to circle back to the Federal Trade Commission that I mentioned in the beginning, because they do have control over that made in the USA label. But it doesn't always mean a company like American Roots, right? Like that label can be a little bit misleading. It's so misleading. And actually, what's fascinating to me is that Made in USA is such a strong brand that um, companies from abroad, brands from abroad are actually gaming that. And um, uh, they're kind of Trojan horsing. And so if you do Google, you'll find a lot of stuff that claims to be made in USA, because the perception is that if the clothing is made in USA, it's higher quality, and the workers, workers have been treated fairly. And isn't that what we all want? Um, so yes, it's, it's a really valuable brand made in USA. Unfortunately, the FTC is stretched thin. They can't chase down every lead. Um, and so it's really up to consumers to do a lot of the research to figure out whether or not this, this claim is actually for real. Yeah, you follow American Roots in your book. I think they largely do bulk orders for uh, union jobs, but I think they do some retail sales. I think American Apparel is one. If people are going to be familiar, they'll be familiar with that. Do you have any other favorites? Oh, I have so many favorites. Um, American Giant is also uh, a domestic manufacturer um, that's doing, if you if you want that kind of thing. Um, there's uh, Bell, Bell and Canvas, which is in LA. They're, actually, LA is now the epicenter of um, garment manufacturing in the United States. So just tons of companies. Um, in LA that are doing all kinds of things from blanks, the blank t-shirts that you would print. Um, a lot of them are in LA, but scattered all over the country. So in terms of favorites, I'm actually planning to put a list on my website. I haven't gotten to it yet, Anna, but this is one of my plans so that people can find them because I think finding these companies is maybe perhaps the biggest challenge right now for us. Yeah. My husband really loves, uh, when we lived out in Colorado, uh, we lived there for a couple of years, uh, my husband fell in love with this boulder company called Pact, P-A-C-T. And, but yeah, you wouldn't know it unless you like stumbled upon it. Yeah, that's really the problem. I mean, a lot of this is organic, people finding each other. And like I said, you know, using algorithms, using in, uh, Instagram algorithms to find people, but it's tough. It's really tough. One thing that I really wish is that Amazon would have a little checkbox, you know, when you're checking all the other things like size and color and brand that you could check made in USA. But I know why they don't do it. I think I think there's a demand for it. But I think the problem is it requires somebody to actually do research to vet the claims. That was Rachel Slade, author of the book Making It in America, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA. Coming up, we're talking about the future of American manufacturing and how the pandemic may have changed things for the better. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. 
Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're looking at the challenges of American manufacturing this hour. And still with us is Rachel Slade, the author of Making It in America, the almost impossible quest to manufacture in the USA. Rachel, this was not your first book. You wrote about the sinking of a container ship in a book called Into the Raging Sea, which made me curious whether the sinking of the El Faro inspired this new book at all, or at least your interest in modern shipping and supply chains. Oh, absolutely, Anna. Um, Learning about shipping and what mariners go through to get goods from place to place um, really alerted me to, to like the larger impact, the larger infrastructure impact of, um, of our dependency on um, imports. It also introduced me to very early American laws, um, which were 100% designed to get Americans manufacturing. Remember, we fought a whole revolution against the, the British um, to, to get permission, basically, to, allow, to, to uh, be independent of them specifically so that we could make our own goods and break three from being basically the mall of America, which the British wanted. They wanted us to be purely consumers of uh, British imported goods. So, um, you know, those are our earliest laws, shipping laws, manufacturing laws, industrial policy that got us making things. And that's what made us this incredible nation, um, which is why I was so fascinated by the fact that we gave up this core piece of ourselves when we started to offshore and policy supported offshoring. You actually open making it in America with a shipping scene. It is a clogged California port during the pandemic. And you have just these like stunning statistics, not only about the weight of everything we import, but about like the bottlenecking that was happening during the pandemic. So what happened during the pandemic was a lot of people ended up obviously in their homes and they started to rethink everything about how they were using their space. Um, And so people just jumped on Amazon for the most part and started ordering a bunch of stuff. Um, These ships and, and so these ships were just suddenly loaded with stuff from Asia, Um, everything from desks to, you know, laptops stands to toilet well we make toilet paper here but it is really literally anything anybody needed was coming from asia because that's what amazon really sells um they're they're for the most part uh, a chinese platform um for selling chinese goods and um it was it was quite remarkable that we could not move the goods fast enough we just weren't prepared for that influx of um literally everything modern people need um, backing, you know, coming through those ports in California. Yeah, I think before the pandemic, it was simply a fact. Like America was a service economy. Like we had moved on from manufacturing. And then we have the pandemic and those clogged ports make the news. But what really hits us is all these shortages. Like you couldn't get masks. You couldn't get toilet paper. You couldn't get all kinds of things. And I think 
we sort of, as a collective, began to realize just how dependent we are on foreign supply chains. Exactly. And I especially want to talk about China. I have nothing against Chinese in particular, but the Chinese government is playing the long game. We know that. And the long game is basically to destroy other countries' capacity to manufacture um, so that the Chinese can become, you know, the world's source for everything, including raw goods that we need. So they have locked up a lot of Africa and mining operations in Africa um, for for the minerals that we need, for, for example, batteries and that sort of thing. And they have, you know, by hook or by crook, taken away a lot of American capability, American manufacturing capability. So we really actually can't at this point manufacture many things without help from Chinese manufacturers. And that puts us in a strange position from a political perspective, especially you know, when things go wrong um, in the geopolitical landscape How do we negotiate kind of with strength when we understand how dependent we are on these goods? Ironically, that was why, that was one of the reasons why NAFTA was passed. It was the inverse. Um, The idea was, well, once we're tied economically to these other countries, um, those other countries will then become democratic. That was the hope for China. And it is actually... um, cause the inverse, the reverse. Um, China has become more authoritarian over the past 20 years. And we have very, we, we have, it's a very delicate um, dance that we play to try to, you know, steer China in a better direction. Yeah, I know President Biden gets a lot of criticism for not being strong enough on the fentanyl that's coming across the border because it's largely coming from China. But he is in this really like dicey place because not only is the fentanyl coming across the border, 90% of our medications are coming here. Exactly. I mean, look, we've kind of backed ourselves into the corner and the only way that we can get out of it is by raising tariffs on Chinese goods, on, on imported goods, which will then recalibrate the pricing for those goods so that it's not artificially depressed because a lot of things that we're buying from China are actually we're buying the pricing is actually cheaper than it costs to produce and all of that again is the long game um, to to destroy American um, manufacturing capability. Yeah, I would think if, you know, they say about social media, if it's free, then you're the product. <laughs> so if somebody's selling you something below cost, they, they're getting something in return. The other problem, of course, is that for every good that you buy direct from China, and we mentioned Temu and Xi'an, but there are so many obviously tiny brands that you buy direct from China through Amazon that's not tariffed, by the way. Anything under $800 is not tariffed. Every dollar that you spend buying those goods goes straight out of the United States forever. When you buy American-made goods, you're actually supporting American workers who then pay taxes, which then support their communities and the larger nation. So the impact of exporting our economy cannot be overstated. 
we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, but when it comes to the tech sector, to high tech manufacturing, we are seeing an effort to reshore or onshore. So here in central Ohio, Intel is in the process of building a major chip manufacturing plant. And I think some of this was driven by the pandemic. In a weird way, it's it's kind of the positive of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to look at any positives, I would say that's definitely a huge positive. I have a big um, cover story in the Boston Globe today that's arguing uh, to bring high-tech manufacturing right back into the center of the city. This is great stuff. What's wonderful about bringing high-tech manufacturing back to America is also that then it unites the knowledge sector, the knowledge economy um, with the manufacturing economy, which will then spur innovation. The proximity, the cross-pollination of makers and thinkers and financers will really spur this part of the of the economy in, you know, in tremendous ways. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, a lot of the colleges here in central Ohio and across the state have really beefed up a lot of those programs. We're even hearing the high schools are increasing some of that to meet the demand that Intel wants for local workers. That's really great. I mean, what I think what young people are really interested in is robotics and automation. And, you know, a lot of people are concerned that, oh, well, that's going to take away jobs. If you look at modern factories, um, there actually aren't a lot of human beings in them anyway. But because because since the industrial revolution i mean human beings have been working in tandem with machines so we're going to need people who program those machines we're going to need people who build those machines we're going to need people who service them um and it's going you know there's there's a new economy developing in america that i think is really going to resonate with with young people who want to work with high tech Yeah, you have this line in the book where you're making the case for reviving manufacturing here in America, and I think it fits perfectly in this part of our conversation. You argue that it's critical to innovation, and you say, quote, you need to know what works to imagine what is possible. And I, like, highlighted that. I love that line. Well, I was trained as an architect, and um, what was really great about being in school was you're just, like, innovating constantly with your hands, right? You're figuring out how materials work, how they go together, how to connect them, that sort of thing. And that's very rudimentary. Um, you know, that's construction, that's small stuff, that's model making, et cetera. But on, on, a, on a grand high-tech scale, the, really, the only way that you can really innovate is have an idea, but understand how to manufacture it, how to make it. That's how you take the leap from concept to product. And it only happens if you have that manufacturing background or you have access or proximity to people who know how to execute. Yeah, and I think that's true of almost any kind of profession. I was actually, when I read that, I also thought about like journalism. Like you learn all of the rules, the inverted pyramid, you learn all the grammar rules, you learn how to structure things. And then when you know how to do it, you get to start to break the rules. You get to like experiment with what you're doing. But you need that like foundation of knowledge and storytelling skills before you get to like mess around with new ideas. Oh, absolutely. There was this great story in the New York Times a couple of years ago about uh, three engineers who had this idea for the world's best coffee maker. They were going to make the world's best espresso maker. And they were brilliant. And they got something like $2 million worth of Kickstarter funding. But you know what tripped them up? 
was manufacturing. Mm. They couldn't pull it together because we don't have that knowledge here. And Boeing has been really suffering from this problem because they they moved from manufacturing everything in-house to um, building a kit of parts from all over the world. And then they ended up with planes that had like very serious flaws. So we need to bring back manufacturing and get sectors talking together so that they can fuel each other and fuel innovation. So we're getting down to the end of the hour, but I did want to ask what policies need to change here in the in the country? I know you talked about tariffs, but like if we really want to build a robust manufacturing industry in the U.S. again, what do we have to do different? I mean, I have to emphasize again, like tariffs are, are a critical part of this. It really is big. Um, workforce training, there is a skills gap that the American Manufacturing Alliance has been talking about forever. Um, we don't, we aren't producing young people who understand manufacturing, are interested in manufacturing, and are prepared to go into the workforce. So I think it, that begins in high school. I think we really need to spend a, a lot more time coordinating, getting um, industry together with our vocational schools and our community colleges to understand what industry actually needs. Um, and I also, you know, we talked about immigration, um, expediting um, people's papers so that then they can start to work legally in America is so important. Um, and finally, tax incentives um, to to allow new manufacturers to you know that that five ten year period where they're experimenting they're building their workforce they're training they're making mistakes they need access to to cheap financing and that's actually what alexander hamilton did back in the 1700s when he created the national bank the whole idea was okay finance this stuff um and it will come back to you in spades we do that in pharmaceutical. We give tons of money to R&D, to our universities, through the National Institute of Health. Those are huge grants. The American government never sees a dime of that. But industry does. A Wall Street does. We need to do that again in all sectors. That was Rachel Slade, the author of the book Making It in America. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's going to do it for this hour of All Sides. Thank you so much for listening to 89.7 NPR News. Look for the union label When you are buying Lacoste dress or blouse Remember somewhere Our union sewing Our wages going To feed the kids And run the house We work hard But who's complaining Morning Edition on 89.7 connects Columbus to the world with in-depth coverage of important issues. NPR covers the globe. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv again today. Central Ohio's largest radio news team covers your community. Wendy's launched its new drive through AI at several Columbus area locations. Start your day with Morning Edition on 89.7 NPR News. Global, local.